regardless of which culture they're from, people who are uh, professional and experienced, they know that it's rare that two parties are 100% on the same page. Like it's not really about question about culture. It's just about the work you do or the department you're in or the team you're in subconsciously creates certain assumptions or certain kind of preferences that you're not aware of. And that sort of leads to communication breakdowns. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Liddy Bugelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Fuminori Gunji. He was a founding member of SoftBank Robotics before heading business development for Make Leaps. He went on to lead Make Leaps as a COO before ultimately joining TokyoMate in 2021 as its CEO. We'll hear more about his experiences and TokyoMate during his interview, but let's go over a little bit of Japanese first. In the previous episode, we looked at the term Uchi Soto. Uchi Soto. Uchi Soto. This term has to do with the idea of in group, which is uchi here, versus out group, or soto in Japanese culture. If you want to learn more about this term and its place in Japanese culture, be sure to check out the previous episode with Rie Eichmann. In this episode, I want to introduce the phrase kao ga hiroi. Ka o ga hiroi. Kao ga hiroi. Kao typically means face, though here the translation notoriety is probably more accurate. Hiroi means vast or wide, and ga is the particle that marks the preceding word as the subject, which makes the literal translation of this phrase a wide face. What it really means, however, is that someone is well known, has a diverse set of connections, or is well connected. It could be helpful to think of it as having a face that is widespread in the sense that it is known to many people. Be sure to check out the kanji in the description of the episode if you're interested. So, if you want to find success in Japan, especially as an entrepreneur or in the startup scene like Fuminori and many other guests on the podcast, becoming kao ga hiroi should be a priority. So, my name is、uh, Fuminori Gunji, and、uh, I was, I'm Japanese. I was born in Tokyo, but I was raised in Germany. I, And we went to Germany before I even turned one year old. Stayed there until high school graduation, almost 20 years. So, mentally speaking, I'm half German, I would say.、Uh, and then I studied in the Netherlands. And then I came to Japan around 2008. And then I worked at a consulting firm, a big Japanese multinational SoftBank. And then I joined a B2B start, SaaS startup、uh, in 2016, 17, I think.、Uh, and then we did an MA deal exit. And now I'm working again at a To be startup as a CEO this time. So, why、yeah. did you decide to come back to Japan after being raised、mm. in Europe? That is a very good question. So, when I actually started studying, I actually just a little bit back. So, my parents wanted me to go to Japanese university, which was a very common thing among Japanese who grew up in Europe. And many of my friends actually back then, after high school graduation,、uh, went to Japan because for Japanese who grew up who grew up overseas, there is a sort of special. 
application uh, framework, let's say, that makes it easier to get into uh, uh, Japanese universities. But I wanted to stay in Europe. So it was a very conscious choice of me to say, like, no, I don't want to go to Japan right now. Like, I just like it in Europe. And so I studied in Netherlands. But then uh, as I was sort of, you know, getting closer to graduation, as it realized, okay, you're almost mid-20s and you're Japanese, you look very Asian. And no matter how well, well spoken you are in terms of German and English and, you know, well integrated in society, you will always be a nation in Europe. Like it's, you know, it's nothing about racism. It's just, you know, it's obvious. So I, and there are some disadvantages. I wouldn't call it racism, but disadvantages that come along with that one. And I thought, well, if you have those disadvantages either way, better make like make up for it by, you know, being truly bicultural and um, understanding the business customs of everything. So I said, okay, I probably won't like it too much in Japan, but just let me go there for three years, get, get working experience. And then my CV says, yes, he's worked in Japan. So he knows both cultures. And then, you know, it will, it was just a very career move, honestly. And uh, so career move, and then also partly like, okay, back to the roots, kind of like emotional thing. But I, I knew Japan. So we were every two years in the summer vacation, we used to go to Japan. So it was, I wasn't a stranger to the country, so I didn't expect too many different things or discover new things, uh, to be honest. But yeah, that was the reason. And then uh, when I came to Japan, started working for the consultancy firm, uh, the work was very tough in terms of hours, but fun. And uh, Tokyo is just uh, yeah, so much fun. So um, now I'm here for yeah more than 10 years. <laughs> yeah, time flies. I guess that yeah. makes sense that if people assume that you're bicultural because you obviously look ethnically Japanese, <laughs> you may as well right. use that to, to your advantage if you can. Yeah, exactly. So you've been involved in the Japanese startup ecosystem specifically. Could you tell us a little bit about your perspective on it? So the Japanese startup ecosystem has changed a lot, or let's say matured. Um, like 10 years ago when I started working, there were like maybe one or two that you could call a startup that were like well known as a startup, but it wasn't so much of an option for most people to think like after college graduation, maybe I'm going to start working in a startup. It was like very sort of odd choice to make uh, back then. And certainly, you know, people, friends or whatever, families, they wouldn't have been supported uh, as well. And nowadays, uh, you see, you read, read, read news about startups in Nikkei Shimbun, which is, you know, the mainstream major um, newspaper. And it's it sort of arrived to the mainstream, I would say. And so that's sort of a big change that I see. And it's, it's good. It's good uh, that more and more sort of smart people and young people are willing to sort of think about startup as an option. Mm -hmm. I had heard that before. Parents specifically would be more than a little bit upset if their <laughs> children decided yeah. not to join a big company, but right. to go off and join the startup scene. Is that culture is still pretty strong for a lot of people or has it changed quite rapidly? It is still there. So it does happen. Uh, for example, I'm also doing recruitment, of course, and uh, it does happen that, especially with the younger ones, where they say like, yeah, I, um, I haven't told my parents <laughs> yet, <laughs> or uh, I still, I still want to sort of check uh, and, and pass it by my father kind of thing. That does come up now and then with the, with the 20 year olds. Um, and uh, so they kind of feel apologetic 
a little bit that they want to take this kind of risk after the parents spend so much energy and effort and money into the education of a child. And of course, they want to see them flourish financially as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's, uh, that's still a thing. But um, what I love, uh, people who also went to the elite universities are uh, joining startups and it's becoming much, much more accepted. Yeah. So despite some of these pressures that are less intense, but they still exist to an extent, yeah. What draws these young people to even consider this option? Why do they end up coming to you? <laughs> so the good thing is that there's a bigger portion among young people, not just young people, um, like those who sort of uh, do career changes as well, is they kind of get fed up with these sort of typical Japanese corporate structures, very hierarchical, slow decision-making. And... Um, I think at least, I mean, of course, I'm in a bubble because I'm in a startup ecosystem. So, of course, I meet more people who are willing to do that. So there's a self-selection criteria and um, I might be a bit biased here. But um, I do feel that there are more people who are, let's say, adventurous or just looking more for interesting job and not sort of want to spend the life of probably their parents of, you know, working 40, 50 years at one company or month. 30, 30 something years, I guess, uh, 30, 40 years at one company and doing a job that they are not super passionate, excited about. Yeah. So I think <clears throat> it, it comes from, um, they want to do something interesting. They want to be involved in something interesting where they can get really excited and ha- get a chance to try out something on their own instead of waiting three, four years until they accept it as a, you know, you're now a proper business person. Now you can make your own decisions kind of thing. Cause it does take like usually three, four years until, uh, you get a certain kind of budget or certain kind of authority in bigger companies. That's, I think, they, they just want to make decisions and they just want to yeah, do stuff. And that's that's uh, great to see that change of this paradigm shift. Yeah. At risk of going on a little bit of a tangent, a hmm. pretty common career pivot for foreigners in Japan is to move into recruiting or starting some sort of freelance work or small business. Hmm. And for that sort of job, it's important to know what the people you want to attract either as a recruiter or in order to help you support your business are looking for. So Mm -hmm. can you offer any insights into what you think um, Japanese talent specifically may be looking for in a position if if it's any different than anyone from a different Uh, I think when it comes to the younger generation, it is... Uh, the, the the differences in countries is becoming less and less. Meaning, uh, in a way, like every generation is uh, probably regarded that way from the older generation. is like uh, they just want to do stuff sooner, and you know they don't they don't like the sort of apprenticeship kind of sort of career step program, I guess. And um, so, if you can tell them like, okay, if you join this company then we'll actually let you do stuff, make your own decisions. We will allow you to make mistakes. And there is a culture that here here you will find a culture where mistakes are allowed and we will support you. We will train you and you will get inspiration from, or, you know, from your peers or your uh, bosses. And that sort of supportive culture mixed with like, it, it's, a, it's a startup. So of course we make mistakes and of course you can too kind of thing. Because maybe for the listeners who are more like from Western backgrounds, the Japanese school system and the, the, the culture and companies is such that it's based uh, on 
not so much on meritocracy in terms of like uh, how many scores you can make or how many points you can score in terms of how well you do, but it's usually more about uh, how many scores goals do you concede. <laughs> uh, meaning, if you make a, there, there's so let's say everybody starts with a certain score of let's say hundred, right? And some people try to go to 200, 300, and they try really hard and that's good. But at the same time, you have to make sure that there are no subtractions. Mm -hmm. And every time you make a mistake, it's subtracted and it's very hard to get back to the original score. And there are only a few companies who reward people who take risks for the sake of like basically asymmetric six uh, risks in terms of like, there's a huge upside or potential upside, right? They rather prefer people who say, let's play it safe. Let's make sure we don't lose too much revenue or, you know, the revenue doesn't decline or we don't um, waste away budget kind of thing. And so that's a very defensive strategy walking through life. And uh, people who survive in big corporations are the vast majority are the ones who basically play it safe and stay away from risky business, even though it might be interesting. And then there is a small portion of people who actually do take risks, but also somehow good enough in playing great defense. And they are the ones who usually end up in a, in a CXO position, but that's just a really small uh, percentage. And um, so you have to, so that's the context of like what happens when you join a Japanese company and people know that. And uh, the younger ones who join a startup, uh, basically they don't want to play too safe or just, they don't, they don't, they also want to play the offense. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And such a small, not it's not necessarily a small country, but I guess, mm small in the sense that it's a large enough market where you can just focus internally. You can kind of live your whole life happily in Japan without yeah. having to really worry about any other countries. Yeah. Why it would be scary to make mistakes Yeah. when there's it's really very... no escape <laughs> yeah. from the yeah, island exactly. in a sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So hmm. could you share a little bit about what you've learned about fundraising in Japan for startups? Yeah, so the fundraising, or this is in general, this whole startup ecosystem uh, has changed uh, quite a bit. And um, just to give you uh, some numbers, uh, for example, 10 years ago, I looked it up, uh, the number of venture capital in Japan, uh, which was mostly concentrated in, in Tokyo, and still is, but uh, even more so 10 years ago, uh, there were only like 80, uh, venture capital firms. Uh, and today we have more than 200. Um, and so there's a much, much more diverse sort of venture capital landscape in terms of the taste of venture capitalists and the things that they care about or the kind of industry segment or business segment that they're interested in. So that's really great to see. But getting more to the fundraising part. So if we redefine fundraising in Japan more specifically to, let's say, fundraising from Japanese VCs, the couple of things that are, I think, different from the U.S. And the U.S. VC ecosystem has changed a lot in the past few years as well. But let's say when the U.S. and 10 years ago. <laughs> and so one is... Uh, in Japan, you find a lot more corporate venture capital or CVCs, or it's it's a venture capital, but if you look it up, you see it's like very backed by a big corporation. It's like de facto uh, CVC. And those play a much bigger role in Japan. So when you see, when you go to, I mean, nowadays we don't, uh, unfortunately due to COVID, we don't really have those like uh, events anymore. But uh, in the back, back then when, when we were, when there were physical events and you would go there and you <clears throat> exchange business cards and, and you talk to them, 
and you, you, you ask them about, you know, their personal background, uh, career background, then you usually find out, oh, he's just, you know, someone from a big company and he was sent to the VC business division in a way. Um, and so only few venture capitalists in Japan have experience working in a startup or um, less, even less so in terms of when it comes to whether they had, they had experience in, in building a startup um, or being a founder. And many come from finance industry or like uh, corporate planning from a big corporation uh, background. And so that kind of tells you the kind of people that sit across the table. And because of that, the, the kind of detail uh, in terms of um, detail regarding business plans or revenue projections that you need to include in your pitch deck is, I guess, more demanding at even earlier stages as well. So that's, I think, uh, the the... The number of slides, I suppose, and the, the detail of information that is required to gain that trust, like uh, in early stage investing is, I think, slightly more than in U.S. Like I compare, I look at like various websites where you can check out uh, the, the seed stage or series A stage uh, pitch decks of like big uh, U.S. companies that, you know, Airbnb or whatever. And you see that and it's like, huh. They 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 got the funding with that one, <laughs> you know. It's a it's it's a, that's I think that's that's one key difference. And I have heard that in other parts of just corporate culture in general, especially if you're dealing with customers, they tend to want a lot of detailed information. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely yeah. something to look out for, even in the startup space. I if you're dealing with more traditional large companies, especially. Yep. Yep. There was a recent article. <laughs> published by Richard Katz, who I may be able to have on the podcast in a future episode. So be sure to watch out for that. Yeah. And it places Japan at the bottom of 196 countries when it comes to inward foreign direct investment. Yeah. Would you be able to break that down for us a little bit? What does (laughs) that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, fun fact: It's uh, that means we are below North Korea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, North Korea probably is getting a lot from South Korea and China. But anyways, um, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I read that. I was not surprised at all. Uh, it was interesting because um, just uh, probably like two, three months ago, uh, me and friends of mine um, who are also running a different company. Uh, we just started talking about like, man, this like foreign direct and FDI in Japan is just way too low. We got to do something about this. So yeah, it is a fact. And it, the, the impact it has or the implications of the lack of foreign direct investments in Japan, uh, specifically for the um, startup uh, ecosystem, means that there is less variety when it comes to uh, raising capital or the kind of capital. So before I go into detail here, I should probably uh, mention couple of things to put things more into context. So as a startup, when you raise capital or uh, people say equity finance versus, you know, just getting uh, a loan from a bank, not every money is the same. Like, you know, if you, if you raise, if you get a loan, business loan, it's just, it's just the money. And the, the only differentiator between picking the loan from this bank or that bank is just the interest rate, for example. But when it comes to equity, it means you're, you're selling your company's shares. And so the money that you sort of receive as equity is kind of really like blood. It, it, it becomes part of the culture of the company. It, it has an influence on what kind of decisions you make because investors, of course, put the money into your company and they expect a return from 
that money, which is which has to be higher than if they put the money on the bank, for example, and uh, getting interest rates. So uh, it matters who who gives that money to you, what they expect from your startup, from your business, uh, like how much it grows, how far it goes, how fast it grows, and how what what scale it should be at the end. And when they want to, when, when they want you to quote unquote exit, meaning um, you know going public or uh, selling your company, and uh, depending on who gives that money to you, of course they're interested in you growing it uh, as much as possible. So they they want to give you advice, and it, it's all coming from a good place. But they want to give you advice. They will give you advice. They will introduce you to business partners or you know potential customers, and so. It's, it's so much more than just money. And if, if there is a lack of foreign direct investment, it means you only get like the same kind of blood, <laughs> uh, if you know what I mean. And so with only a few direct, foreign direct investors here, and um, most Japanese entrepreneurs only get feedback from Japanese VCs, uh, where most of them have not too much experience in building or working in a startup or scaling a new business or new technology in a market, in a mature market, for example. And so what I very often hear is, at least until very recently, so just recently, like just this year and last year, it has just, it has changed a little bit. But um, uh, traditionally, what I heard very often was Japanese VCs don't encourage startups to go uh, too big. And um, the reason is that in Japan, there isn't really a thing uh, which you could, I, I think the, the right way to say is like a secondary market for pre-IPO stocks, uh, which means there isn't really a market for selling stocks that are not sort of publicly traded. And that means that uh, from a VC perspective, unless the startup goes public or you know, does an M&A, the venture capitalist doesn't, doesn't really get a return on their investment. Uh, so of course... And you know it can take seven, ten years, right? So um, until recently, the trend was that a lot of Japanese VCs sort of pressured the companies, the startups, and the entrepreneurs to prematurely, you know, go public or exit uh, because they want to get a return on the investment. They want didn't want to wait uh, too long, or more than you know, seven, ten years. And another thing that sort of makes it easier to for that kind of culture to establish is in Japan there is a stock market uh, that's called Mothers. And it allows for a much, much smaller scale IPO. So it's not the Tokyo Stock Exchange, but it's a much, much smaller one. And where you uh, only need uh, more than 200 shareholders or uh, I think 1 billion Japanese yen, uh, that's roughly 1 million USD in uh, company valuation. And uh, I forgot the details about minimum requirements for going public in, on NASDAQ, for example. But I remember back then when I looked at the numbers, like it's a huge difference. Like you, ha you can you can go public at a much much smaller scale in Japan, and so that's sort of I think a key difference in fundraising in Japan and the, the relationship that you have with VCs in Japan. But the good news is it's changing a lot, especially since the last one or two years, and it, it shows that the Japanese VCs are learning and getting mature, and um, getting more patient in a good way. Yeah. And for anyone who wants to learn more about the issue specifically, I'll be sure to link the article in the description of the episode. But do you have any insight into what is blocking foreign direct investment in Japan or what had been up until recently? Mm. So 
the key difference, I did talk to a couple of like uh, foreign VCs just to, you know, ping them like, hey, are you interested in investing in Japanese startups, including mine, um, was uh, the problem that they often say is, okay, the most of uh, Japanese media and uh, the websites of startups, it's only in Japanese, right? So it's kind of hard. It's to them, it's like a black box. Like, of course, they know it's the third biggest country in terms of GDP. Of course, they know these macro data and they are aware it's a big market, but it's really hard to get information like fresh information. Of course, you can read, um, you know, translate articles of Nikkei Asia, whatever, BBC Asia, whatever, but that's like very highly summarized and, and you know, it's not really it's not very really fresh information. Uh, you don't have like TechCrunch Japan, something on, on about Japanese companies. And so the, the language barrier is non-trivial here. And um, it makes it really hard to research for uh, VCs and sort of screen the market in a way. And, um, but what you do see, do see now and then uh, right now is foreign VCs are actually participating in at least like later stage rounds, like series CD or like, you know, close to IPO. It's kind of clear like I have this, this, this company, uh, with this growth rate and uh, whatever, it's it's quite clear. Like, it's just a matter of time until they go public, kind of thing. And um, there was an interesting news article um, that was much talked about in in our community. Uh, I think two weeks ago, which uh, listed the top five startups in terms of just the amount of fundraising. And um, it was interesting. So, or maybe maybe you can guess it. So, guess how many foreign direct investments. Were or foreign investors were involved in these five startups, the top five. If it's the top five, um, were any involved? Yeah, the thing is, all top five had uh, foreign investors. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the latest stage fundraising amount is getting much, much bigger than it used to. Like I'm talking about like 10x and more, which is probably, you know, it goes hand in hand. In later stages, you see more and more sort of foreign VCs getting involved because then there's more information available and uh, there's also basically more budget available to translate, I suppose. <laughs> so that's just really great to see. But in early stage, it's it's still super rare to find uh, foreign investors. Maybe I'm just being naive as an American seeing companies in the United States and companies that have American investors and things like that. But mm-hmm. what are the barriers in Japan to people really investing in their English education. I know from my own experience, my own experiences in Japan that, or at least I was a teacher in South Korea for a year and the education systems Mm -hmm. are rather similar. So (laughs) at least for language, they kind of are based on the same ideas about language acquisition. So I understand that from a young age, it's just the methods that are used that make it difficult to be fluent later on. But why even among these more globally minded people who are clearly ambitious, who clearly are very interested in the world, why mm. is there still this difficulty in gaining English proficiency, do you think? Yeah, it's the, um, the, the, the English education in Japanese schools just uh, sucks. <laughs> mm. um, it's, uh, I mean, you, 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 uh, um, you described it in a very polite way uh, before <laughs> the ideas of language acquisition. That's a great way to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I do have exposure to that one because when I was in Germany, 
my parents wanted me to go to Japanese university. So of course they, I had to go to an after school uh, program, which is called Juku. You probably heard about that one to a Japanese Juku in Germany. <laughs> they have that. Um, and uh, I only took uh, language and math class because uh, they thought that would be the hardest to catch up. But they have like these summer boot camps and winter boot camps where you can just waste away your vacation on going every day to that school. And there I also did English. And then I, that's where I learned like how they teach English in Japan. And so first of all, the teacher doesn't speak English. Not really, right? It's katakana English. Like it's, uh, it's really bad pronunciation. And if you were to have, if you were trying to have a conversation with that teacher, it's probably not very likely you get very far. Like they couldn't run a business meeting in English uh, or any sort of serious meeting. So that that's one, like there's a lack of English proficient teachers in Japan. And then the whole curriculum is uh, strongly focused on grammar uh, and getting the grammar right instead of speaking. Like it was for me, the, uh, just to sort of compare how English was taught in, in German schools. I remember the first day in fifth grade in Germany where uh, the English teacher came in and she's, she was German, but she spoke beautiful British English. And then we had our books on the table uh, and a desk. And she said, don't open your books. Uh, I'll say something in English. I'll explain what that means later. Just imitate my pronunciation. And then we open the book and you see how it's written. Don't look at the letters right now because it's, it's pronounced very differently than if you would read German, right? So don't get confused by the, the letters. Don't look at it even. Just look at my mouth and repeat after me kind of thing. And that was the start. And then uh, even later on, it was more about um, how can you actually use it? Like, how can you communicate? It wasn't so much about that grammar is wrong. So like, you know, F, sit down. And But in Japan, it's really like, okay, you got to get the grammar right. And and they all these, these kind of puzzle-ish quizzes about grammar where you kind of wonder like, what's the point of doing this in such a sort of complicated quiz style? Like it's, there's no point that like you don't talk. When you, when you want to you know, have a conversation, you don't think this way. And so, yeah, it's even if you are uh, an elite university student, you had these years of badly designed English education. And so that makes it, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, people who never been overseas will speak great English, but uh, it's a minority. Right. It's definitely possible for people, but also, yeah. unfortunately, people who end up being able to go to those elite universities can go to those elite universities because they're best at the Japanese yeah. education system. Yeah, taking quizzes, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that might actually be not the sort of selection that you're looking for if you want English proficiency yeah. specifically. Right. But yeah, thank you for breaking that down for us. Are you seeing any changes recently in the Japanese business startup culture that you think are due to the pandemic, since we're kind of still ah, in the heat of things right now? True, true. Yeah, unfortunately. To be honest, when it comes to the pandemic, I would say, I mean, just like um, in the US as well, the Japanese startup system or ecosystem is mostly like IT companies, right? And for IT companies, culturally, but also the tools that they used before the pandemic, like chat tools and this, you know, video conferencing tools, I don't think I've heard of any startup company who was like badly affected in, in terms of business or like, you know, team management, um, because they were already a lot of companies who, you know, worked remotely. Um, 
or uh, when it comes to the product that they provide, um, the, the pressure to remote work is nothing but helping uh, the demand uh, for these products. So I think for most Japanese startups, this whole COVID thing, as terrible as it is, is from a business perspective, rather tailwind. And what I, do, what I did see and hear was that uh, fundraising during that time was more difficult. Um, because of course, you know, all the investors were kind of scared about, okay, it's what's happening with this market? Is this still growing? And of course, they I wouldn't say they freeze, but um, they were sort of very cautious about investment. But um, it picked up again in 2021 because they saw in 2020, like it's not as bad as uh, we expected it could become, at least not for the startup environment. And so it picked up pace again. And um, so, yeah, it had it had little effect, surprisingly, I would say. Are there any business practices that you think will stick after the pandemic? Or do you mm. get the sense that things like work from home, uh, lack of nomikai, those sorts of things, mm. do you think <laughs> the push will be to go back to normal? Or do you think some things will continue post-pandemic? Yeah, so when you look at surveys and also talk to people, it's, it's hard to imagine that things will go back to what it was before, uh, even for big companies. And so when you look at surveys, uh, you see um, like percentages of like employee service where they say 70, 80% say like, uh, I don't want to go back to what it used to be. Of course, working from home in, in, in Tokyo with, you know, uh, you know, we don't have big houses here. <laughs> so we are still expensive. Even 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 that even even if it's a small space, people prefer to work from home uh, much more than going to these super crammed trains and every morning and super stressful. And a lot of families, like I have a, a small daughter as well, but uh, you get to spend so much more time with your children, even though it makes it sometimes hard. Of course, when you're having a meeting and they come back from you know, daycare or whatever, and then they you know jump into the screen kind of thing. But most people say like, yeah, I, I don't want to go back. Uh, there's a small percentage of people who prefer to just, you know, keep work and home separate, uh, which is understandable. But I think the, the hybrid model will at least stick. And co companies like Yahoo Japan, um, they uh, recently actually uh, announced that they will sort of, the, they will run out the current sort of rent contracts, office rent contracts in, in, in a city area. And they will shift to, I think, 80% remote work, basically, and um, significantly downsize the, the office room, which is one of the biggest IT companies in Japan here. So that sends a big signal. And I think many companies will follow. And those who don't, well, they just have, will have a harder time with recruitment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the other side of that is I can name companies in my own area that are the same way. It's nothing unique to Japan where you just show up to show that you're at work. It's kind of, yep. you get promoted based on how often your butt is in your seat basically and for how long, <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see how that more traditional view of work and showing that you're a hard worker interacts mm. with the hybrid culture. And I know yep. that in the States, at least we're a little bit worried about how that will affect women in work specifically because they're with children statistically yep. more likely to opt into working from home just so that they can balance that as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in Japan too, if it'll mm. increase mm. participation because of the flexibility or if mm. it could 
exacerbate some of those lack of mm. promotion for women in companies. Yeah, yeah. How how that plays out on sort of company politics or who gets promoted? This is all that's also hotly debated in in Japanese media as well. Uh, so those discussions are very similar to what I read in U.S. media. Like, okay, uh, how do the bosses see who works a lot? Like, do you just check the Slack statistics and check out who sends out most messages? That can't be the answer either. Uh, even though it's a it's a it's a good hint. <laughs> But what I see in these discussions and online, or you know, when I talk to people, is the good thing is it exposes more about like what's actual work, and there's now a stronger focus on. What kind of meaningful communication do you need? Do you, does need to take place between management and uh, the managers and the teams or employees? And so, um, I think it's it's a it's a good trigger to talk about the things that you know that what makes a good workplace and uh, what's a good communication culture and um, what makes a good worker and whatnot. Right. So it it. it puts pressure on both sides, like the, the employee side and the management side as well. Because a lot of people in, in online, uh, in the commentary section, you see like now the people who just, you know, uh, sit down and don't do anything, they are exposed kind of thing because everybody sees like there's no output. Like if it's every, if everything is online, it's kind of very clear who has, who delivers output and who doesn't. And so they're sort of cheering. Um, and, but then again, uh, there's also a voice like, well, not, not every work is designed in a way that you create output on a sort of weekly basis or something. So um, that can't be it either. And so, uh, it, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's definitely changed how Japan works. And it's great to see that even big corporations are realizing that, um, many of them. And yeah, it's hard to imagine that things will go back. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, good. So then shifting gears a little bit. Sure. So you're someone who, as I mentioned before, you spent most of your formative years in Europe. Mm -hmm. So when you finally came to Japan to actually live and work as opposed to visit, mm -hmm. what were some things that surprised you in Japan? So before actually moving to Japan, I did visit Japan with my parents like every two years in summer vacations. So I wasn't a really stranger to Japanese culture or how work, um, how life is here. And when I was in, in Europe, I did do kendo, which is sort of like sword fighting, a Japanese traditional sword fighting, I guess, with bamboo sticks, which was taught by Japanese and entirely with like I mean, a Japanese group of people. So, and as you can imagine, like Japanese martial arts, of course, it's very like traditional culture. So I was exposed to that uh, early on. So. I kind of, I think I had a, of course, not other than being Japanese, I think I had a pretty good sense of how it's like to be in a Japanese organization. But if I had to pick one thing that was actually surprising was that uh, I had this image that, you know, Japanese work environment would be like very formal uh, and super hierarchical and you kind of have to be on alert all the time kind of thing. And what I learned was, or maybe I was just lucky with the Japanese companies I worked for, is that it was surprisingly like very, at least among your colleagues, um, it was very fun and casual. You would call each other with your first names or, you know, nicknames. And of course, when you're facing a customer or business partner, then you, you know, we switch it on. And it's like super formal and all the Boeing and all that, the things that you really usually read about Japanese business customs. 
But within the company, it was like really when, when the situation allowed, basically it was like pretty chill. Like everybody did hard work, but it was also like very casual, very friendly, very uh, helping each other out. And that was kind of surprising. Even when it comes to the relationship with the bosses, of course, there was a very clear hierarchy that you had to respect. But, you know, you would go out together and they would actually care for you. They were actually interested in, you know, who you are and uh, what your background is or your private life. Uh, nowadays, I guess, I don't know, in today's culture, maybe people would say like, that's too nosy or it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's invading privacy, but I didn't take it that way. I just thought it's a very sort of uh, family-ish um, environment and uh, I did like it. And, um, and so that was uh, surprising. And, Another surprising thing was that might be a bit specific to my personal experience. So when I joined this uh, consulting firm, uh, it was a firm that was founded by uh, Japanese people who formerly worked for Accenture. So they had this like very, you know, very US style consulting thinking and logical thinking and whatnot in place. But at the same time, the culture of the company was very, very Japanese too. And so uh, what we, what the newbies, <laughs> how we were called, what we had to do was in the very first year, uh, every morning at, we had to show up every morning at 7 a.m. to clean the desks and the doors. And we had cleaning service, right? So that, that it wasn't the point. It was just about humbling you. And if when I told that to my friends in Europe who you know graduated around the same time, they were like, "What? Like you didn't do that? You you didn't graduate college for doing that kind of you know stuff." But I didn't take it that way. It was actually I liked it, and it was sort of a good exercise of doing seemingly mundane stuff, but which but it, it's about cleaning your work environment. It's like caring about your work environment and having having awareness for it. And you start appreciating actually the cleaning service as well, like the people who show up there, which uh, because it was consulting for my, you know, now, now and then I had to work until 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the office. And they, that's when they come in, right, around 5 a.m. <laughs> and uh, because I, we all did the cleaning too, we, we, when we said thank you to them, we actually meant it. And so that type of sort of being humble and it has a value. It's, it's, I know it probably sounds strange from a Western perspective that you have college graduates cleaning the tables, but I think it's, it's good to sort of damp the arrogance that some college graduates probably tend to have. Um, and I think it was a pretty good thing to sort of get rid of arrogance and thinking you're better than somebody else, uh, that type of thing. So that was uh, surprisingly refreshing and I didn't dislike it, to be honest. Yeah, even though it was hard waking up at 4.30 a.m. getting ready to be uh, in the office at 7 when you worked until 2 a.m. So <laughs> right. uh, that was crazy times, but yeah. Yeah, I was completely on board with it except for the uh, 7 a.m. part. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the sales meeting started at 7.30 a.m. so that we can start oh, the actual intel meetings too. at 8 a.m. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little later in the day and I could get on board. Right. But <laughs> so... Just it could it be in Japan or in Europe or just with somebody from a different culture that maybe you weren't familiar with. But do mm -hmm. you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown that you believe was due to culture or cultural differences? I would say 
like when I did experience uh, communication breakdowns and sort of business environment, uh, my take on it was that even though people thought sometimes it was cultural, uh, from my perspective, it was more due to a lack of understanding on both sides uh, that there is that there is information asymmetry between two parties always. And re regardless of which culture they're from, people who are uh, professional and experienced uh, enough, they know that it's rare that two parties are 100% on the same page. Like it's not really about a question about culture, it's just about the work you do or the department you're in or the team you're in. And so if you, if you have different type of work, then you're exposed to different kinds of information on a daily basis, which of course has an impact of how you view the world and that subconsciously creates certain assumptions or certain kind of preferences uh, that you're not aware of, um, that you have them. And that sort of leads to communication breakdowns. And when I did experience it, it was because two parties, the two parties involved, at least one of them was just unaware that there is probably a bigger information asymmetry between the two parties than they thought there is. And basically that means they were too inaccurate or they provided too little context to you know communicate whatever to the counterpart which led to communication breakdown it's like it's just a miscommunication and uh, the way i experienced was that it was more about the uh, the individual matchup problem <laughs> rather than uh, cultural backgrounds and and those where i did see uh, the case of like communication breakdowns like the individuals involved in that situation they also usually uh, got into, not usually, but uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to get into fights with colleagues or people from other departments uh, from the same culture. The, the way I see it is with, it, it has more to do with the individuals and maybe sort of a lack of information asymmetry awareness, uh, let's put that way in fancy words. But just, yeah, just being more clear about uh, just providing more context and stating uh, the assumptions that you have which is sometimes difficult because a lot of the assumptions are things that you're not really aware of that you have them, but uh, getting becoming aware of what kind of assumptions do you have about uh, the work environment or the business or uh, the market or the customers, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that, that is, I think, all the, the, the solution. When, when you're aware, unaware of it and then think and assume that, of course, they should know, then that's the, the first way to get into trouble, I would say. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And just based mm -hmm. on the personality that you described, it sounds like it has more to do with empathy and self-awareness than it yep. does about uh, having yep. the same cultural background. Yep. So, so definitely something to keep in mind. So mm -hmm. if you were chatting with someone who is going to Japan for business and mm -hmm. they only had time to learn one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time, what would mm -hmm. you teach them or tell them to go ahead and learn before they go? I would tell them, so if, I, if it was one thing I had to pick, I would tell them, uh, you'll be surprised how good Japanese beer is. It's not just whiskey. <laughs> oh, uh, just kidding. Um, the, it's true. But uh, I would say, of course, there's a lot of stuff written about the um, what's, what's sort of strange or different about Japan. But in, I, I'm not saying that those are not true, but if you sort of break that down or dig deeper it's um Jap japanese people are not like as mysterious or different uh, as it is often perceived it's just um 
they do certain things or they care about certain things in a more intense way than maybe other cultures. Um, recently, I was listening to uh, this great podcast by uh, Dan Carlin, uh, who, who's doing this brilliant hardcore history podcast. And he repeatedly said, the Japanese are just like everyone else, only more so. And I couldn't agree more. So to put it in a more tangible way as an advice to someone who goes to Japan doing business, I would say, just think how you would act and behave when you had to do business with your grandparents. Because the people from the older generation, uh, I think in any culture, they care a little bit more about formality, about hierarchy, about respect to elderly people, putting in the effort no matter what, uh, maybe enduring pain, suffering a little bit more in, instead of complaining right away, preferring paper over digital, <laughs> Pre preferring phone call over messaging, preferring over communication rather than sort of super efficient or you know minimum communication caring about what other people say or think or the community thinks about your actions and words and so forth. You, I think you get the idea. So um, think about, let's say, grandparents from the Midwest and US, I think. I think that's actually pretty close in terms of culture. <laughs> and think how you do business with these people. And then, um, and if you just then dial it up a little bit more uh, to be extra careful in that direction, and then I think you'll be fine. Because uh, people will see that it, it's coming from a good intention, even if you do a mistake. And if, if Japanese people are, if, if they see a good intention, then um, then they don't uh, sort of scold you for doing something wrong. Like they usually see it, I would say. Yeah, that is such a great way to frame it. Thanks for that. <laughs> and as somebody yeah. who is in the American Midwest, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I had I had great experience when I was working at SoftBank, which was shortly after, I joined SoftBank shortly after they uh, acquired uh, Sprint. And so I had to, I went to business trips, I don't know, probably 10 times to Kansas. And um, yeah, wonderful people, very, you know, friendly. And I, I, the way, and, you know, the, the way they sort of uh, prepared the welcoming of our business trip and everything, I thought, they're not too much different from Japanese. Like it's, it's very similar in a way. Um, so that was kind of surprising and interesting to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is super interesting. Sorry, I'm just thinking about my, <laughs> the culture here now too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I really appreciate your time. I want to be mindful of it. But is there anything that you feel like we didn't get to touch on today? Anything we didn't get to go deep enough on? Mm. Yeah, if I if I may just add one thing is, uh, especially in the recent two years, uh, the Japanese startup environment has matured a lot. And if any of the listeners are investors, it's really worthwhile to pay attention because this whole pandemic, this COVID, uh, has opened up doors for IT solutions or you know, especially SaaS software, for example, to be much, much more acceptable among the sort of, uh, I would say, like in terms of market segment, early majority and even late majority companies because they just have to adapt to it. And so... Uh, you see a huge increase in like uh, SaaS software solutions uh, for B2C, B2B. And it's really flourishing because the, the, the people are buying and, and sales has become much, much easier for these companies. And everybody knows it's a big market. So even though there is the language barrier, 
it's really worthwhile to take a look at Japanese companies, and uh, I think it's interesting to to invest there. Saying it for self interest as well, of course, but uh, <laughs> but I think the numbers uh, of the 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 very recent increase in foreign direct investments or foreign investors in Japanese startups is just proving that. And I'm not just saying it; just you can ask these investors in a way. So. Any places people should look specifically if they want to learn more from you or learn what you're up to? Um, yeah, you can follow me on, uh, you can check us out on uh, LinkedIn, um, Tokyo Mate, Tokyo as it spells and then Mate, M-A-T-E, uh, all in one word. And then uh, they usually link me very often there as well. So if you look for, if you just Google Tokyo Mate, uh, then you'll find everything on our website and SNS. And uh, we will post interesting stuff about Japan and um, so what we do, just uh, uh, if I may uh, elaborate on that one really quickly. So Tokyo Made is a, what we provide is um, virtual, bilingual virtual assistants, English, Japanese, uh, virtual mailbox and virtual receptionist under the concept of office as a service, uh, which makes it really easy for uh, foreign startups or foreign entrepreneurs in Japan to build the business and really focus on the business side instead of caring about the legal and the admin stuff. Uh, where we have to, you know, talk to Japanese authorities and whatnot. So we'll get in between there and help you. And so because of what we do, we post very often things about, you know, um, you know uh, how to set up a company in Japan, uh, what are the difficulties, introducing bilingual tax accountants and whatnot. So if you're interested in somehow building a business or doing a business in Japan, then uh, I think we are a very good information source. I agree. <laughs> it's definitely worth Thank following you. on LinkedIn if you want to have an idea of what's going on in Japan and also just get some practical advice, help just help you deepen your understanding of doing business in Japan little by little. It's definitely a great mm. resource to follow. Thank but yeah, you. thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Fuminori and Tokyo Mate. I personally recommend following Tokyo Mate on LinkedIn for regular, high-quality information and advice on working and running a business in Japan. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new copy page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you would like, please go ahead and leave a voice message, and you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.